0: Lois Lupica, and I am resident scholar at the American Bankruptcy Institute. I'm joined today by Dale Matchalot, chairman of the International Housewares Association Government Affairs Committee, and Bruce Kamenstein, CEO of Casabella Holdings LLC. Today, we're gonna be discussing bankruptcy preference rules and their impact on creditors. We're also going to be exploring a proposal put forth by IHA suggesting a change in these preference rules. So let me just start by offering some context, um, an overview of section 547 of the Bankruptcy Code. Section 547 of the Bankruptcy Code allows for a trustee or a debtor in possession to recover transfers, typically a payment or a grant of a security interest, that take place 90 days prior to a debtor's bankruptcy filing. The justification or thinking behind preference law goes to the very purpose and goals of the bankruptcy system, to address the race to the courthouse problem. When there are insufficient assets to pay creditors in full, Individual creditor collection may harm creditors as a whole. Therefore, the theory goes, bankruptcy is designed to address the collective action problem, preserving the going concern value, and preventing dismantlement of a company. And preference law exists generally because the descent of a company into bankruptcy takes time and this time allows the more diligent individual creditor to opt, to opt out of the compulsory collective bankruptcy process. Preference law, therefore, is designed to encourage fair dealing and ordinary behavior between creditors and debtors. The Bankruptcy Code also provides for defenses to preference claims to ameliorate the over-inclusive nature of the Bright Line Rule. And these defenses are designed to exclude transactions that in all likelihood were not the result of opt-out behavior by creditors. So with that said, I'd like to ask Dale and Bruce to tell us about their organization, the International Housewares Association, And their interest in preference law. So, gentlemen, if if you can start by telling us about IHA, uh, what you do, who your membership
1: is. Of course. Uh, This is Dale Manchelot. Thank you, Professor Lepica. Uh, The International Housers Association has about 1,500 members throughout the world. And they're suppliers, basically, of consumer goods, non-durable consumer goods for the home such as flatware and uh, crockery and textiles and that sort of thing. Uh, It is, say, a global organization, but about two-thirds of its members are in the United States. And interestingly enough, about 80% of its members could be considered small-sized companies since they have about $20 million or less in revenue annually. Uh, the main uh, object of the International Housewares Association is a show, which is held in the spring of the year in Chicago, Illinois, which brings together all of its members and their customers in a very large trade show to see the new products that have been developed during the year and to interchange new ideas about the, manuf- the, about the uh, retailing of such products. Uh, And it has been a very successful and widely known and attended show from throughout the world. Uh, That's basically what IHA does. And I'd like very much to have Bruce talk a little bit about the sort of niche uh, actions it does with respect to government affairs and why we're talking about the preference rules uh, in IHA. Bruce, can you go ahead?
2: Yep. So this is Bruce Kamenstein, as you said, I'm CEO of Casabella Holdings. We are um, design, manufacturer of houseware products. We specifically sell kitchen and cleaning products. Um, I employ 70 people here in Congress, New York. We're a global company. We sell all over the world. Like most companies in our industry, we, uh, you know, manufacture a little bit here and all over the world achieve, you know, efficiencies and and, uh, best costs. So I've been involved, actually I was chairman of the IHA about three years ago, and I've been on the Government Affairs Committee since 1996 when it started, and it really started out of uh, outrage of um, bankruptcy. I mean, there was a period, I guess it was in the year 2000, that there were a lot of companies going bankrupt, uh, retailers. And there just seemed to be, uh, it was just so prevalent. And a lot of our suppliers went out of business due to their going out of business because it was just, it was just the time.
0: So both your suppliers and your customers were filing for bankruptcy?
2: Yeah, there were in, you know, I don't know, I don't remember the exact year, but there were a lot of bankruptcies over a couple of years. And due to the preference claims, um, and the credit risk, a lot of people lost a lot of money, including myself. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you specifics here on one bankruptcy that really affected my company. Um, in, about four years ago, five years ago, there was a company called Linets and Things. They were a public company, editor of Bed Bath and & Beyond, and they went bankrupt. Um, and affected a lot of people in our industry. You know, the... The retail landscape over the last 10 years, uh, last 20 years, has really consolidated that there's just not a lot of retailers. You see it. You walk the streets, you see it, you know. There used to be so many more retailers, and now it's very, very consolidated. Every retailer is very important and usually has a big impact to a supplier like us. Linens and Things was about a 3 or $4 million account at that particular time, you know, probably you know, between 10 and 20% of my revenue. They went bankrupt. Um, I don't remember the specific year, but we can get to that information. Um, They went bankrupt, and um, we we lost the receivable. Um, I had some of it insured, but I didn't have all of it insured. And I don't remember the exact amount, and I can get all those numbers together. But it was um, way above $100,000, the receivable. Then I got sued for a preference claim um, for about $900,000 because we did a lot of business right before they went bankrupt. And as the law states, they um, they can sue you for any payment made 90 days prior to the bankruptcy and it, the burden on proof is on us to prove ordinary course of business. So it just happened to be that linens and things went bankrupt during a very, very high time in seasonality for us on when we shipped them. So we just shipped them a boatload of goods over the last 90 days, which I guess was 900,000 dollars because that was spent that we were sued. So um, we had to hire a lawyer to prove that this was ordinary course of business. And it was ordinary course of business. There was no preference claim. I mean, there was no preference. They paid us in 30 days. Um, And that was the time. But we had, so we got sued, so we have to hire a lawyer to prove that.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And that is the, that's the crux of the problem. Now, that is the big issue. So I, we spent, you know, I don't remember the exact amount, but it was above $50,000 to prove that we did ordinary course of business. Now, we had to settle with Lindens and Things credit. We settled for $75,000, I remember it clear, because my lawyer told me, you know what, I'm just going to drag on and we just, for legal bills, and the best business advice I can give you right now is offer up $75,000 and let them go away. Because, you know, they're just going to keep on going and going and going. And, you know, with more paperwork and more paperwork, that we just settled for $75,000. Mm-hmm. So, the problem that this, this leads to is, you know, it's a double whammy. Not only companies like myself have the calculated risk of a receivable that you understand when you ship, that, okay, if I'm going to ship this, I may lose it. And that's a calculated risk. But then what you have to also calculate is every shipment 90 days prior to a supposed filing, whenever that may be. hmm so that really gives a lot of business risk and furthermore what it also does is get you very nervous on shipping a retailer who is a little suspect and may have rumors that they are not doing well or possible filing so mm-hmm. when the retailer is desperate need of goods because they do need our goods you shut them off because of, hey, I couldn't even lose this, but I'm going to also lose everything that I shipped to them prior to the 90 days. So it, it really presents a double whammy. Mm-hmm. And the other problem is we have to demonstrate ordinary course of business. We have to demonstrate ordinary course of business. When most of these checks are paid by computers these days, it's not like 30, 40 years ago where retailers used to write checks out by hand. You know, It's all done by a check register. It's all done by a computer. So we have to prove ordinary course of business. We have to hire a lawyer to defend that because all these retailers do is take the check register of any payment that was paid within 90 days, and I guess the creditors' committee just, just hires a lawyer and just go and sue everybody. And it's up for us to prove ordinary costs course the business and think that's
0: abusive. Well under section 547 the trustee still has to make out or the debtor in possession um, still has to make out a prima facie case which means that seven requirements under the bankruptcy code have to be proven and only then does the burden shift and so um, one of my questions is Who is in a better position to produce the evidence that the payment was made in the ordinary course of business? The creditor seeking to establish an exception to the rule against individual collection, or the debtor in financial distress?
2: The debtor sees what was paid. And if it's in normal course of business, and and by the way, again, it's usually done by a check register. And... Can it fluctuate a couple of days because the checks are written on a Friday or the checks are written on a Wednesday, and instead of being 30 days, could it be paid in 28 days, could it be paid in 32 days? And is that defined, is that an aberration or is that normal course? And Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, I'm going to argue it's normal course Mm -hmm. because that's what the checks have been. So we actually have to prove, and that's what we did in Linz thing. That, that was the payment. That has been the payment schedule in the past because it's all driven by computers.
1: But first, what Bruce is saying is uh, widespread in terms of their experience throughout the International Housewares Association. Mm-hmm. Many of its members have had similar experiences, and the complaints, and I've discussed this with the management of the association often. The complaints with respect to this problem are numerous and consistent and ongoing throughout the organization. Mm-hmm. What, what we suggest with respect to this problem, and by the way, we've never had anyone in the organization say that they had been benefited or protected by the preference rules. All have said that speak out about it, that they feel very vulnerable with respect to the system as it is, just to basically what is extortionate in a way. What our solution, and by the way, we're not, we don't have all the answers in the world and we're more than willing to discuss any other answers that the, uh, anyone may have with respect to this. is
3: that
1: if you took the burden of proof and the pleading elements of ordinary course and gave it to the debtor, the trustee in bankruptcy then you might be able to more focus the preference rules on what they originally intended to do. By the way if you think about the organization IHA it is the sweet spot if you will, a of, of of creditors and vendors that should be protected. Mm -hmm. and yet they feel abused by the process. So that in itself is a kind of a telling about the way this is handled in the bankruptcy process. Mm -hmm. As you've noticed, Bruce didn't say he was angered and unhappy about the fact that he would lose almost all other than sometimes a token payment on his receivable. He understood that at the time that he he, uh, shipped the goods. But what he didn't didn't understand is that payments that he gets time after time after time would be questioned and it would cost him time effort and money including the hiring of a lawyer to because the burden of ordinary course was on him
3: mm-hmm.
1: if you put the burden of ordinary course on the debtor you then focus the, you force the debtor to focus on whether there's something fishy about the payments that they are reviewing in the checkbook.
2: Exactly. You
1: have a 30 day, 30 day, 30 day, and all of a sudden it's 10 days. Do you have some reason to believe, kind of a Rule 11 analysis, if you will, that there is a that this is made and it was made in order to prefer one creditor over the other, and that was the result. And that and that would. Would basically take the, let's just take the trust, the check register, let's peanut butter spread the claims across all of those who received payment in the 90 days, and let them spend the time and effort and money to prove otherwise. That is the process which we
2: object to. Right. So, Professor, that was Dale. That was that was exactly the the, the situation. So, when you talk about burden of proof, the retailer has that information. Mm-hmm. they the checks that were paid, and if one was out of aberration, 10 days instead of 30 days, you know, then yes, then that was, unless there was a written deal between the, the creditor and the debtor in terms of payment terms, that's not normal course. So they, they have that information. What they don't do is really closely look at that. What they do is sue first, and then it's up to us to fight it out, you know, afterwards. And that, by the way, you know, is a complete distraction and a lot of money to us. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. They have the information, and there should be some kind of, you know, statutory deviation between what normal course is and what's not normal course. Again, most bills, most payment terms are 30 days, you know, or 60 days. If it's paid in 55, is that, an, you know, is that not normal course? Is that a preference? Probably not.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And we, and I remember specifically, we had a fight over that. And, and that's not the case because it's just a question of the day of the week that the invoices are paid on a check register so that's the problem and that that's actually they have the information it's not like they don't have it
0: so a, a, a couple of questions um so in 2005 Um, I understand um, IHA, along with um, a a number of other trade groups, were supportive of a change that was ultimately made to Section 547, the preference provision, which um, the the amendment uh, had the requirement of applying both a subjective and an objective test to ordinary course transfers, meaning looking at ordinary in terms of the industry, as well as looking at the issue of ordinary course transfers, payments, with respect to dealings between the two parties, to instead only have to prove that the transfers were made in the ordinary course according to industry standards or in the ordinary course, not and, or according to standards established by the parties. So has there been any positive effect from your perspective um, post-2005, post-BAPCIPA's change?
1: Bruce, have you noticed
2: any? No, but the question is, I have not seen anything because I haven't had a file it.
0: I see. Um, Dale, have you heard of any effect on your membership?
1: no i will tell you that the, um, the complaints have been pretty much along the same lines because of the as you i have a, 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 an associate that I've known for a long long time and so he, say words matter and and as you know professor in this situation burdens of proof matter <laughs> and and that's the problem here is that is that it's not there's, there's, it's not a no-cost problem to demonstrate this. And and so it is very traumatic to these businesses to have to spend the kind of money, which is often a substantial amount to them
3: because mm-hmm. they're
1: such small businesses to do this. And so they have not seen... I haven't, we haven't observed any uh, uh, less complaints about the the process with respect to the preference rules since 2005. In fact, the association was very much involved in changing the uh, the, the uh, reclamation uh, law and giving a little bit more time to the vendor to demonstrate to be able to demonstrate uh, the, the the reclamation requirement. Uh-huh. That we thought would help. And literally, what the association members say is that. Advantage has kind of been taken away by the aggressive nature in which the preference rules are being managed by debtors and mm-hmm. trustees and
3: debtors.
0: Well, um, Dale, you mentioned you were open to other ideas beyond your proposal. So mm-hmm. let me <laughs> let me raise on. a uh, a question, an issue. So why can't the burden of defendant creditors be lightened by creditors simply having in place standard accounting and bookkeeping procedures to prove the subjective test, meaning accounting software and electronic tracking of payments, um, put in a process to produce a detailed billing and collection report every month or every 90 days or 360 days, Um, wouldn't that alleviate some of the burden on creditors?
1: I think... Professor, that that is in, in more the, the 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 world of of larger businesses, and, and even they are are pressured and inconvenienced and out of pocket with respect to the preference rules. But they have the accounting systems and the numbers to be able to put into put into uh, effect. A kind of a uh, insurance policy with respect to their ability to demonstrate ordinary course. Problem with, in my view, small businesses. And Bruce, please chime in as to how you think of this. Is that one they've got a lot of customers, some of which they don't really know are in trouble until late in the game. Uh So they don't have the ability and the, the, the the time and the effort to put together something which is only called into to usage in a thank goodness small amount of times. But they never know which one's that's gonna be. Right. So so the the other opposite side of that I see is that I, I I just I just feel very strongly that in a situation like this there ought to be a requirement on the pleader to demonstrate some reason why right. they believe this payment was preferential from the point of view of outside the ordinary course of business. But that's not asking too much of them because they have the data and they are the the, the center of the of, of the equation, if you will, at this point in time, as opposed to having to spread this safety net across all kinds of vendors and all kinds of different situations with all kinds of different payment policies and
2: processes, particularly that, that, that's on the, the subjective point. side. Uh-huh. That, sorry to chime in, but that, that, that's the point. The creditor, I mean, let's go back to Linus and things. They have that check register. They knew when I was paid. They know when they pay people. And if everything was in normal course of business, why should they sue? If, there was, if they had to go to a judge and say, this was not normal course because they, we paid them 15 days earlier, that would be another case. But they had the check register. They had the information.
0: So are you saying that um, larger businesses may have the the standard accounting and bookkeeping procedures in place, whereas that's a greater challenge for smaller businesses such as your own?
2: I think every business these days, unless it's a teeny weeny mall retailer, has an accounting software and they know when they pay everybody. I mean, I think if you, you know, punch in Casabella Holdings and, you know, into an accounting software, they will find a check register showing the invoice and when it was paid. I mean, I I think that most retailers these days have that. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but we get very few handwritten checks. I mean, not that I see every check here, but most of them are Mm -hmm. are driven by – you know, driven by a computer system, which is driven by an accounting software that has that check register. So the problem is right now is, you know, like Dale mentioned, is they just sue because it's easy and they know that it's going to cost us money to prove, so it's sort of an extortion.
0: Well, your observations about the proliferation of preference demand letters Um, have been confirmed across industries. Um, What I have also seen is that in reaction to this proliferation, um, many bankruptcy judges have been more sympathetic to creditors. Has that been the experience of your members, Dale?
1: Um, I don't think they have. They are aware of that, and of course, the practices vary among jurisdictions,
3: yeah. and in the, within
1: a jurisdiction, among the bankruptcy court judges. Yeah. So it's a little bit hard to say. There's been a, a blanket, uh, improvement in the basically the the the, 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 the holding, of the uh, bankruptcy trustee and his lawyers to, more. Uh, Definitive, uh, fact, explicit pleading, and 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 I've thought about this one, professor, because I do I do myself have seen at least within the trade press, within the legal profession, uh, an indication that that's happening in 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 the world at large. Mm-hmm. That judges are beginning to sort of back off the the old notice simply notice pleading requirements and say, now, let's talk about, this, talk about this a little more specifically and what facts do you have and what have you uncovered? Mm-hmm. Um, that's why I think, frankly, it changing the burden of proof here is so very important because without this being part of the burden of proof, you almost have, the way I kind of look at it from a legal perspective, you almost have a kind of insidious second Rebuttable presumption in the bankruptcy rule, bankruptcy preference rules. The first one being if the check came within 90 days, the payment came within 90 days, it was made by an insolvent debtor.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Debt. Get that. Yeah. But the next one, which is kind of sub-Rosa, is then also by the way it was made to prefer that creditor over others. And that's the kind of, that's where I see the, 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 uh, The abuse, that being open to abuse within the system.
3: Mm -hmm. And if it
1: were backwards and a judge was able to look at a bankruptcy trustee and say, what is it about this payment that you find within it a reason to believe that it's more probable than not that this was, in fact, made to prefer one creditor over another? And that's a question that I think... You're absolutely right. The trustee should be, should be able to answer if a judge asks it, but doesn't have to do that under the present rules.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, but doesn't your proposal raise the risk that certain creditors would feel more free to place demands on a distressed company slash debtor due to fears of not receiving payment in the event of bankruptcy meaning that there may be a higher incident of not in the ordinary course of business business payments with the burden in accord with your proposal on the dip to prove that the payments were not in the ordinary course in other words couldn't there couldn't we be opening the door to more nefarious behavior on the part of some creditors. I
1: can't. I, I, I can't answer that from the point of view of, of practice.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I can say that any time you shift burdens of proof, you do change the. You change the equation. Yeah. But that, because of the fact, the debtor's accounting system lays out all the payments very neatly and we're focused on the debtor's payments as opposed to all payments that have come in from throughout the world with respect to people that you sold goods to, it is a much more efficient and precise focus. And if there is something that, that is, is, looks wrong within the payment cycle, that that can raise enough of a red flag that the trustee in bankruptcy can bring it up and then the process is started and then as you know professor there's back and forth
3: yes someone
1: throws in throws in some evidence and then others say yeah but that was that doesn't demonstrate that this payment was in the normal course mm-hmm. et, cetera, et cetera, and you have a battle yeah and i understand that that, that, that that the proof uh burden has changed but i don't think it will change the nature of the the discussions within the, the claim itself, the process for the claim itself, uh, except insofar as the debtor won't be able to sit, stand back, fold its arms, and say, we got a check, 90 days, now it's your the ball's
2: in your court. So, Professor, what it actually will do is give us a little bit more security on our business and able to ship with a little bit more confidence you know, that, again, as I said in the beginning, is we, we know that there could be a calculated risk on an invoice or two because they go bankrupt. But even if you play by the rules and do everything right, everything right,
3: mm-hmm.
2: we do everything right, we ship within terms, we get paid within terms, we are playing the game right, we get sued. Mm -hmm. And it's our burden of proof to prove ordinary course, and that's not right. Because they know they have the information.
0: Well, here's another issue your proposal raises. Doesn't your suggested proposal have the potential to increase administrative expenses by having the DIP or the trustee do the diligence to prove that a transfer was not a preference? And wouldn't the result of the change also be a smaller recovery for the rest of the claimants, such as tort claimants, and a larger recovery for trade creditors? And how would this be consistent with the function and purpose of bankruptcy?
1: It is our understanding from the literature and from our experience that by and large, the fee, the, the recoveries related to preference claims are paid to the administrators as opposed to paid to the claimants. So the present system does not substantially add to the bankruptcy estate. At least that's what our members believe.
3: Uh-huh.
1: Our, our members, frankly, would not. Uh, would not necessarily be unhappy if the entire preference system were abolished. But that's not what we're talking <laughs> about here because they see no benefit. All they say is risk and uh, disturbance and harassment in it. Uh-huh. Uh, but what it would do, in my view, is basically reduce the time expended on. Preference rule claims, and therefore has the potential to reduce the time in bankruptcy because of the reduction of that process. And they're being able, once they make a decision about, uh, are more laser like in the decisions they make with respect to who they're going to pur- uh, pursue preference rule uh, claims with respect to, that it may in the end. Reduce the expenditures and reduce because every because time in bankruptcy mm-hmm. is expensive. Yeah, and so I think there is that possibility.
2: Yeah, that's. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, um, but I heard from my attorney that it would. Every supplier got sued in linens and things for preference. It was going through the check register, so the amount of time that took. You know, uh, we were early on because we're a C. You know, that's what he was telling me. You know, um, the amount of time it takes to sue every supplier to go through their check register is quite honestly. I mean, I I, I don't know how long that that bankruptcy went on, but it was years, mm-hmm. and they had to settle every every preference claim, and and and. We, we did hear that the monies recovered in these preference claims pays the lawyers and not the creditors committee and we have that fact somewhere but that's that's what we hear
0: so um, gentlemen what steps have you taken to date to um, put forth your proposal
2: every year we go to Washington <laughs> <Every> <laughs> well we year, have we to have... Washington yeah.
1: The, uh, the there is also uh, an organization known as the uh, uh, Credit uh, of Manufacturers Association, where the, basically the credit officers of manufacturers and suppliers uh, have an organization, and we've teamed with them. And we have brought this proposal before both the Senate and House committees, responsible committees.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and and we have also, as we go to Washington, as as uh, Bruce said, mentioned it to uh, our legislators, our senators, and our members of Congress uh, with respect to uh, our uh, our proposed change to the preference rules. And frankly, interestingly enough, we've not found much opposition to it. Mm-hmm. What we've found is a little bit of sort of as you know it's hard to change something that's already going on a kind of inertia as opposed to opposition
3: yeah
1: uh, and we keep and and frankly bankruptcy reform as a whole is not high on the agenda in in Washington DC at least as i perceive it these days although i think it's getting more initiatives particularly with some of the things that your organization is doing
0: yeah the, the and, chapter and this, 11 reform is, commission um, has, is is yeah. about to produce a report um, addressing a variety of issues under that arise under chapter 11
1: and, and that will i think be helpful in terms of getting that to the in the forefront of the minds of the legislators and their staff which i think is important but we we we've actually received some substantially uh, favorable reaction to our proposal but Again, it's the issue of you need to overcome what is basically we've got we've got lots of other things we're doing here, and and uh, uh, we'll get to it when we get to it. But we're not put off by that. We keep coming to Washington. We keep putting our face forward, and we, as we says we, we as we believe it's the right and fair thing to do. We think eventually we'll overcome.
0: Well, I admire your persistence. <laughs> <laughs> well. Thank you so much, gentlemen, for joining me. Um, Dale Matchlot of the International Housewares Association, and Bruce Kamenstein, CEO of Casabella Holdings LLC, and a member of the International Housewares Association.
1: Thank you, Professor, very much for your time. We enjoyed talking.
0: I'm Lois Lupica uh, from the American Bankruptcy Institute. Okay.